0: Let's pray. Lord, what could be more important than, than to do what we're about to do? Than to do what we have been doing this morning. It's fixing our attention on you. And Lord, because you've spoken in your word, there's, there is nothing that makes more sense than to listen to you. There's nothing more, more wonderful and worth it than to listen to you. And so, Father, we we pray that you would help each one of us here to listen to your word this morning for your glory and for our joy, that we would delight in your word this morning, that we would delight in you as we delight in in your word, and that our delight would bring you great glory. Father, by your Holy Spirit, may we Do more than hear words this morning, O God, but may we see you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. What is the most important thing about you? If a complete stranger... Needed to know one thing about you that would help them understand at the most basic level who you are. What would it be? Would it be something about the way you look, your body? Would it be something about your life story, your background, your accomplishments? Would it be something wrong with you, like a weakness or a sickness or a loss? Or would it be something even more basic than all of this? Over 60 years ago, A.W. Tozer wrote an important book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and he opened up the first chapter of that book with these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us? Do you think he's right that your thoughts about God are the most important thing about you? I, I, I think so. Just full disclosure, I agree with I agree with Tozer. Time and time again, I've seen how the problems in our lives, our churches, and our world all come from low views of God, or incorrect views of God. And that's actually what, what Tolzer pointed to in the introduction to his book a few pages earlier. He said, and again, remember he's speaking 60 years ago, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. In the 90s, David Wells wrote an important book called No Place for Truth, and he traced how the, the way in which God rests so lightly on our minds and hearts is the, the source behind so much of what's wrong. I think Tozer was right. And I think he's right because I think in many ways this has been the thesis of the book of Proverbs or at least one way of putting it. Back in June, we began this series through Proverbs 9 to 31. We did Proverbs 1 to 8 a couple of years ago. We did 9 to 31 and in chapter 9, in verse 10, we heard these words, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowing and fearing God is wisdom and insight. Not knowing and not fearing God is foolishness. And so if we don't know God and we don't respond to him properly in fear, then we will waste our lives in foolishness and folly. We've heard a lot about wisdom and foolishness and folly in the past Months, and much of that has had to do with us and what we should or should not be doing. And yet, here today, the last week in this series, I so don't want us to miss what this has all been about, or rather, who this has all been about. So for the final week in this series, it's appropriate for us, and we had planned this from the very beginning of this series, that this is going to be our last stop. We're going to behold our God together. We're going to look at what Proverbs 9-31 to has told us, tells us, about God. What does it mean to know God? Who is he? What does it mean to respond to God in fear and in trust? These are the questions we're going to be answering this morning or seeking to answer as we end our series back at the beginning of wisdom itself, or rather, himself. And so there's three main headings this morning. Knowing God, fearing God. Trusting God. And we're going to begin with the biggest, which is knowing God. What has Proverbs told us about knowing God? According to these chapters, according to, according to what we've seen in Proverbs, what should come into our mind when we think about God? Okay, see, we're bringing Tozer's question into it. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what should come into our mind when we think about God, according to Proverbs? Well... Proverbs 9 to 31 has given us several important answers, and this week I pulled them together and they pretty naturally fell into seven headings. Now, that works out really well, seven being the number associated with God in Scripture. And others, I'm sure, could break it up different ways. But number one, the first most foundational truth about God we see in Proverbs is that he's our creator. This is the most fundamental truth about God, period. From our perspective, at least the foundational one where we have to start, is because this is where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Proverbs reminds us several times that God is our creator. So Proverbs twenty twelve: The hearing ear and the seeing eye, Yahweh, the Lord, has made them both. Do you see this morning? Do you hear And maybe someone reading Proverbs is learning to grow in wisdom and they're thinking, oh yeah, I I can see things now. I can pick things out. I can hear things. I'm becoming wise. And this reminds us, do do you see? You're looking through an instrument that God made. Do you hear? You're listening through an instrument that that God made. Our ability to perceive is a gift because we didn't make ourselves ourselves. 22 verse 2 reminds us that God made not only us, but everybody else. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And twenty-nine thirteen says the same thing. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. So God made you and he made everybody else. And this is one of the most important places to begin as we think about who God is because there's a, a fundamental divide here between God and the rest of us. If you hear what these verses are saying, you have the richest man on earth and the poorest man on earth, and there's a huge gap between them, and yet both of them are still in one category, which is created being. Neither of them made themselves, and, the, and, and so the richest man on earth is no closer to, to being like God than the poorest man on earth because God is creator. And we are created. And that is is a fundamental difference between us and God. Do you know God this way? When you think of him, do you think of not just someone who is a part of our creation, but someone who towers over creation because it's his? Second, number two, Proverbs highlights that God is all-knowing. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You can't keep a secret from God. This thought terrified me as a child. And some of you were likely terrified by that little song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above who is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. And it went on and on. And it was this idea that God sees everything, so be careful. That's actually a pretty good thought. We should teach our kids that idea, if not that song. Because Proverbs reveals a God who knows absolutely everything, from whom no secrets can be kept. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon. Okay? Death and hell would be a way to sum that up in our modern way of putting things. The place of death and destruction. Death and hell lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? The shadowy realms of death and hell are exposed to God's sight. So how much more the depths of your heart? God sees all. And he's not just passively observing and and taking interest in it. He is testing, evaluating. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We all think we're doing pretty good, but it's, it's God's evaluation that matters. He's the one who's weighing the Spirit. Proverbs 17, 3, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And, and God tests hearts in the same way that we purify gold and silver, often through a lot of heat, a lot of struggle and trial, and, and, and often it's when we're in the furnace that the real us comes out. Sometimes we say, "Oh, that that wasn't actually me." Well, that actually is where the real us comes out in the furnace. God evaluates what's going on in our hearts, and He knows what's going on in our hearts better than we do. Twenty twenty seven is very interesting. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. And the way that the way that uh, that I was led to take it this week through some, some, some commentaries and some study tools is, is that the word spirit there, the spirit is the same word for breath, the breath of man. And the idea is that our breath so often comes out in words. And so it's the idea here that what comes out of us, which is our words, actually is what shows what's on the inside of us. That's kind of what this verse is saying. So it's very similar to what Jesus said, out of the abundance of his heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? What comes out of us shows what's inside of us. But God knew what was inside of us all along. And this whole process that what comes out shows what's inside, God oversees. Two more Proverbs show the way that God sees all. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Again, we all, we all think we're doing good. But the Lord weighs the heart. In 24.12, if you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? God knows. God sees. Do you know this? When you, when you think about God, do you know him in this way? A God from whom you, you can't keep a secret hidden. You can't deceive him or trick him or impress him. He sees all thoughts and motives. Do you know the God who knows everything? This leads us into our third truth about God is that God is sovereign. This is a wonderful truth about God, a truth that comes up over and over again in the Bible. R.C. Sproul once said that this is God's favorite truth about himself as he looked at the way that this truth was celebrated in the Bible. And he said, if I was God, this would be my favorite truth as well. And that's a dangerous thing to say, but I think he's on to something because Proverbs celebrates again and again, and the Bible celebrates again and again, that God does not simply see and know, but He is actively involved in running the world. That's what it means to be sovereign, right? The word, we've heard the word sovereign in the news a lot in the past couple of weeks because our sovereign died. Sovereign has to do with being a ruler, a king or a queen, God's sovereignty speaks about the way that he rules this world according to his purposes. He's the true king, and he is sovereign over big events and small details. Proverbs 16.4 tells us that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, the word here for make, the Lord has made everything. That word for make is not speaking about creation per se. It's a word that has this sense of execute, and it's often used to speak about God's sovereign control over the world. So it's the word that's used in Isaiah 43:13, where God says, Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? That's God's sovereignty. A God sovereign who does something, and no one can get in this way and stop him. And so that's why back in Proverbs 16:4 the NIV gets at the sense of the word when it translates it the Lord works out everything to its proper end even the wicked for a day of disaster even the wicked are a part of God's plan for what is unfolding the Lord is sovereign over all things now God does not make anybody wicked but the wicked and their wickedness are within the sovereign plan of god think of think of uh, joseph and his brothers you meant evil against me but god meant it for good one event two meanings him being sold into slavery one event two meanings there was your meaning which was evil and there was god's meaning which was good and god used his wicked brothers to do something really good. Has God ever done that kind of thing before or again since then? Used some really wicked people to do something that was really, really good? Well, how about the death of Jesus, who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, as Acts 2.23 tells us, and in the same breath, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who, who, is, who is in charge of Jesus dying? Wicked men like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the soldiers? Or the sovereign Lord who is bringing together a plan to save us? The answer is yes. This is God's sovereignty. He works everything to its end. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16 verse 9 shows us that the Lord is sovereign over the course of our lives. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You make your plans But what ultimately happens is up to God. And that's exactly what 1921 tells us. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We've all got our plans. Many of them. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this. But it's what God wants that will happen. And this leads 2024 to ask, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? None of us will fully understand the way that our life has unfolded and why it has unfolded the way it did. Because none of us are in control of our lives. The steps that we've taken have been directed by the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that we're remote control objects, Proverbs has shown us that we are responsible to make wise decisions. We make meaningful choices, and God holds us accountable for those meaningful choices. But in the end, it still falls under God's decision, God's sovereignty. And there's so much we don't know because we're not ultimately in charge or in control. God has sovereignty to direct our lives, God has sovereignty to direct our hearts. Proverbs 21:1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it wherever he will. So by this point in the day each one of us has had the opportunity to turn on a tap And to let that water, the stream of water, flow on our hands. If you haven't done that yet, you should probably go and wash your hands right now. But I'm assuming we all have. We've all turned on a tap and felt the water run on our hands. And as we move our hands under, it makes the water move in different places. That's a picture of what God does with our hearts. What God does with the hearts of the king, even powerful rulers. He guides and shapes and directs our hearts just as easily as our hands shape a stream of water. And if this is true then Proverbs twenty-one thirty to 31 is true. If this is true, then no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Go ahead and get your horse ready. Go out and fight, but whoever wins is up to the Lord. And if God has decided something, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel is going to change things up. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. He rules. He reigns. And what he wants to happen happens. Big things like battles and even small things like the roll of a dice. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap. Okay, the, the lot is like, like dice. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So God is sovereign over which way a dice lands. That's how sovereign he is. And this is why in in the Old Covenant they would make decisions by casting lots. Should we do this or this? And they would kind of throw these dice, or they'd have these things called Urim and Thummim, and, and whichever way they would land, that's what they would do. And they weren't gambling, they weren't taking chances. They knew that God was sovereign in control of which way those things landed. They believed that God was the king. Yahweh, the Lord God, he reigns, he's sovereign over all of history, over every event in our lives, over our hearts, even over the tiniest little details that we can think about. Do you know God in this way? Does your understanding of God include the fact that he towers over all of creation and that for all of time, every galaxy, every government, every germ has been within his sovereign plan and he's working them all to a perfect end? you know that God is this big. Number four, God is righteous. Isn't that good news? After considering that he's sovereign? A universe that was ruled by a powerful and wicked God would be a nightmare from which there would be no escape. But the sovereign Lord is the righteous Lord. And we see this in in a few ways. Proverbs 16.11 A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. So in the markets of the ancient Near East, they would sell spices and nuts and things like that and they would weigh it out. And a, a, a dishonest merchant could weight the scale a little bit to make people pay more than they should. And God hates that. And God loves Justice, even at that smallest level, because he is a God who is righteous and just. Proverbs 17.5 shows us the righteousness of God when it says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to God. So you have a courtroom where they say, yeah, this wicked guy, actually, he's, he's, he's the good guy. And this righteous person, no, actually, he's the bad guy. God hates that. It's an abomination to him because he is righteous. And Proverbs in many other ways has been telling us that that this is who God is. Do you know God in this way? Do you know that God never fudges his books or makes a mistake? Do you know that God is perfectly and powerfully righteous? Number five, his words are true. Proverbs 35 to 6 hangs on our kitchen wall at home. We got one of those letter boards where you can put put up a verse. And this is the first verse that Amy put up. And we just said, why would we ever change that? Because it's just such a good reminder to us. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. And then this, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Because God is righteous and perfect, his words are flawless. Every word proves true. This is a very important verse in helping us understand the nature of scripture as God's word, that it's true because it came from God, whose every word proves true. And this is an important reminder to not go beyond what God has said or to put words in his mouth or to be dissatisfied with what he's told us. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You don't want to be rebuked by this God. You don't want to mess around with his word. Instead, you should find refuge in him because he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And this is pointing to the fact that God's promises all come true because they come from him. So trust in him and his promises And you will find yourself in a place of safety because God's words come true. And this brings us to number six, that God saves the righteous and judges the wicked. God is judge and savior. Because he is righteous and true, he will faithfully deal with the wicked and save the righteous. And he can do this because he's sovereign. And many verses point us in this direction. We've seen a lot in this series and a few this morning. 1529, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. 1810, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, that's God's name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So God's name speaks about his character, his reputation, who he is And God's character and reputation are a safe place because he is unwaveringly righteous. He keeps his promises and he's faithful in his judgments. 29-26, many seek the face of a ruler. Solomon knew this. People were lined up all the time to ask for justice. But it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. God is the just judge who rules the earth with justice and will bring justice to those who need it. Now, if you trust in God, these are comforting promises. If, if your hope is in the Lord, to know that justice is coming, God is going to set all things right. This, what a comfort when things fall apart and we see wickedness gain the upper hand. But to those who don't trust in the Lord, for those who refuse to trust in the Lord, there's no comfort in knowing that he's a faithful judge. There's no comfort. Proverbs ten twenty nine: The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. Because God's character is what it is, not only must he save the blameless, he must and he will destroy evildoers. 21.12, the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor, 22.12. 22, 14, the mouth of the forbidden woman. So that's speaking about that that adulteress, the, 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 seduce, the seducer, seductress. The mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Proverbs has told us a lot about the, the, the damage of adultery. It's warned us about it again and again and again. And it says that those who commit adultery, who are unfaithful, will be punished. And yet this verse tells us that adultery itself with all the pain that comes from it, may itself be God's judgment against those with whom God is angry. Does your idea of God contain these ideas? His judgment? His anger? It's so easy for us, particularly here in the West, to think about God as a cosmic Santa or teddy bear or cheerleader but this is not the God of the Bible. He is a refuge to those who take refuge in Him, and He is a destruction to evildoers. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says Hebrews ten thirty one, and these proverbs tell us the same thing. Do you know God in that way? Thankfully, this isn't where we end. There's a seventh truth we see in proverbs which is that God is forgiving. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 16, 6. Iniquity, which is a word for sin, can be atoned for. And in the era of the Proverbs, how did that happen? It happened at the temple, in this sacrificial system. Animals were butchered every day to pay for the sins of the people. Gruesomely communicating that the people deserved a bloody death for their sins. But God would allow this animal to take their place so that they might live another day. And Proverbs tells us this whole system of atoning for and forgiving sin was a result was an extension of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why he gave them this ability to pay for sin temporarily, because God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. This is close to the very heart of who God is. God told Moses, when he proclaimed his name to him, that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. And of course it goes on from there to say he will by no means clear the guilty. And in our Sunday school this morning, adult Sunday school, we were wrestling with the tension of how, how can God forgive and not forgive and, and come to adult Sunday school next week. It's, this is one of the most important questions we can wrestle with. And the resolution is in the cross. But because this is who God is, he made a way for our sins to be atoned for. But you and I know this atonement With the animals, the bulls, the goats, the lambs, was only temporary. It was only ever a shadow of the reality, and the reality is Christ. And so let's not forget this morning that as we think about the righteous and the wicked, that we see now in light of of Christ that apart from him, we're all in the category of the wicked. We're all guilty and condemned. And that's why sacrifice had to be made over and over and over again, because our sin just never got dealt with. And so God sent his son to offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Hebrews ten twelve. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree and paid for them once and for all. And so in the death of Jesus, we see the fullest picture of God's love and God's forgiveness. In the cross, we see this verse from the Proverbs sixteen six shining so clearly by steadfast love and faithfulness, most clearly in Jesus Christ crucified, iniquity is atoned for. And in fact, if we if we work backwards to this list, we see that in the cross of Jesus, in his death, we see these attributes of God coming to full flower and full crescendo. So we see God's forgiveness there. We see the way that God is a just judge, punishing our sin in the person of Jesus, saving the righteous who have trusted in him through Jesus. We see the truth of God's words. If we go back to God's words being true, as he promised a savior and the Savior finally came. The cross demonstrates God's righteousness. Romans 3.25 talks about that. For centuries, God passed over people's sins. And how could he do that? Well, He was waiting for the cross. In Romans three twenty five twenty six, 26 the cross demonstrates the perfect righteousness of God, showing that he can forgive us and be righteous at the same time. The cross demonstrates God's sovereignty as we've seen already as he sovereignly orchestrates wicked people to bring about his perfect plan and this assumes God is all-knowing. He sees what's in the hearts of all these various players and people and all of us who needed it and this is all grounded in God's authority as creator to do with his creation what is best. So do you see that Proverbs has shown us these seven Aspects or attributes of who God is. And we see them throughout all of scripture and we see them with brilliant clarity in the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's why the New Testament repeatedly points to the death of Christ as the pinnacle of the revelation of God's glory. That's where we see it shining the brightest. So if you would know God, and we're not we're not done here we have two more points that we're we're going to move through but if you would know god read the proverbs and don't take your eyes off the cross behold our god now if all of this is true if this is if this is at least a big part of what it means to know god to know him in these ways then how should we respond to god and Proverbs furnishes us with two major answers to this question. The first answer is that we should fear him. We should fear him. Proverbs had so much to say about this. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We've read 9.10 already. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Many times throughout this series, we've heard about the, those who fear God. And there's three more Proverbs we'll read today. 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. 23, 17 to 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Twenty eight, fourteen. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. In light of everything that we've seen here about God, how could we not fear him? And yet this is where many people trip up. Because the idea of fearing God seems so out of place with, with many of our modern ideas about God. And it especially might feel out of place even with what we see in scripture about the love of God. If God is loving and kind, and how can we fear him? And doesn't the Bible tell us again and again to fear not? I mean, every time an angel shows up, it's the first thing they got to say: "Fear not." And that's true. And yet, the Bible also tells us repeatedly that we should fear. And sometimes, in the same breath, when God came down onto Mount Sinai, with this fire and the smoke and the sound of the loud trumpet, the people were terrified. And Moses said to them, Exodus twenty twenty. Listen to these words very carefully: Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Don't fear because God's just come to make sure that you fear him. Does that make sense to you? Or what about these words from Jesus? Luke twelve four to 7 I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Who's that? That's not Satan. That's God. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five, without taking a breath, I mean, I'm sure he took a breath, but just right, right, goes right into it. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear God, who can throw you into hell. And fear not, because you're so much more valuable to him than many sparrows. How does this work? The best way that I can understand it is to say that there is a sense in which we should fear God, and there is a sense in which we should not fear God. We should not fear to draw near to God. See, that was the problem at Mount Sinai. God came down and the people wanted to run away. And Moses says, no, don't fear. We should not fear to draw near to God. I mean, we come with fear and trembling. So even here, we got to watch our language. But the fear that makes us want to take off from God and never come back, that's not the kind of fear that we should have. We should know that God has come down with our best interests in mind. But one of those interests is to cause us to fear him that we might not sin, that we might not turn against him. So we could put it this way. We don't want to have a fear of God that makes us run away from him. We want the fear of God that makes us never, ever want to run away from him. The fear of God keeps us from walking away of him because we, we properly fear what will happen to us when we do. And so we draw near to God and we don't do so flippantly or casually. We tremble as we rejoice because we know who God is. We delight and we fear. And how else can we capture this dynamic? And I, I racked my mind this week for for different examples and illustrations. And one of the best that I could come up with is actually from the world of fiction. C.S. Lewis did us all such a favor when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and wrote this character, the lion Aslan. It's not perfect. It's the work of a human. But Aslan captures so well this lion who is huge and not safe and terrifying. You fear him, but he's good. And he's wonderful, and he's a source of safety and salvation and joy. And so you see the children in the story draw near to him with delight and with fear that are perfectly intermixed. And I think that's maybe the second best place to understand the fear of the Lord. And the first is the Bible. Just read it. You'll see it again and again, how the fear of the Lord and the delight in the Lord flow in and out of each other. Let's make this really real for us today. Do you fear God? Do you fear God? Would people describe you as a God fearing person? Do you know the fear of the Lord? I invite you to consider what we've seen of God this morning and to fear Him. And what you're going to find is that when you fear God, there's nothing else you need to fear. And that's why the fear of God leads us into trusting in God. Numbers of Proverbs here, very briefly, 16.3. Commit your way to the Lord and your plans will be established. Trust him. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. 16.20. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. 20.22. Trust in him, even if it takes patience. Trust. Trust in him. Sometimes we have to wait, but what's the alternative? 29-25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You notice there, fear and trust? And here's what we can see here as we sum all of this up. It is not a choice between fearing or not fearing. It is a choice between whom we fear. We can fear man and, and walk right into a snare, or we can fear and trust the Lord And find ourselves safe. And so here we are at the end of our series in the book of Proverbs. And yet we find ourselves all the way actually back at the beginning. My hope for many of us is that we find ourselves here at the beginning knowing that we're just getting started on the journey of wisdom We don't have wisdom under our belt, right? And we've learned that in this series, that if you think you've got wisdom under your belt, that you actually don't, you know nothing. So I hope that this series has brought to us a sense of humility. And yet here we find ourselves at the beginning of wisdom, knowing, fearing, and trusting the Lord. So this week, how are you going to put this into practice? How are you going to put these things into practice? Will you seek God in his word? Will you approach God in prayer? Will you ask him to empower you to know him and to fear him and to trust him? By now, I hope we know how we do these things. God has given us his word. He's given us his church. He's given us prayer. He's given us his world. So many ways to know him. Will you respond seeking him, fearing him and trusting him? I have one very small practical suggestion for you this week. Just a small step to put some of this into practice. It's getting darker earlier in the night here and the odds are many of us this week are going to be awake when the sun has gone down and the stars have come out. And so next time that you're out when it's dark, maybe it's going to be putting out the garbage or going home from a small group. I encourage you to take a moment Don't look down at your phone. Put it in your pocket and look up at the sky. Look at the stars and the galaxies and feel the little twinge of joy that comes from knowing that there is a person who made all of that using words. And that person knows everything that you've ever said or done or felt. And that person has full authority to punish you forever. But instead, that person poured out that punishment on his own son. And he's invited you to come and know him as your, as your father. Take a moment and tremble with fear and with joy. And I invite you to do that even now as we take a moment to pray and then sing. And may God help us to carry the knowledge of him and the fear of him and the trust in him into every corner of our lives. Father, would you help us to do that? Oh Lord, would you lead us to know you and to fear you and to trust in you? And to know that as we do that, we need fear, no other. Lord, would you keep us here at the beginning of wisdom always, fearing and knowing you? And would you help us, oh God, to be lifelong learners of wisdom, applying what we've learned in these past months in Proverbs for your glory. Would you help us to behold you, oh God? Amen. Amen.